You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning. My name is uh, Phil, and uh, my wife and I are members of Gateway Church, And uh, which is really weird to say for those of you that know us. Uh, and, and I'm glad that's still funny. Um, I've had the opportunity to teach a few times um, up here, and it's always it's always like a super nerve-wracking thing for me, uh, and I don't know why. Um, but I, I think it has something to do with um, the way that trying to explain the scriptures carries a weight. And... Um, there's always this tension that's inside of me that like wants to say every single thing that I think I believe about a particular text. And if I were to do that about this one, we would be here until tomorrow, and no one wants that. Um, so please uh, just extend a bit of grace to me and that if I don't um, somehow connect your favorite part of this passage uh, don't assume that I don't think it or I don't believe it or we don't think it or we don't believe it. I just, I've been wrestling in this space for a couple of weeks since um, Tom asked me to talk about this. And uh, we went back and forth and said, okay, what do you want me to talk about? He's like, well, we're in this series about the creed the Apostles' Creed, and I want you to talk about Jesus Christ, Son of God. And I want you to use John 1. I was like, oh, okay. Terrible. Uh, how, how, how does one, like, deal with Christology and all of the other uh, thoughts around all of this with this really beautiful poem in John? And uh, so I just kept thinking, and I kept thinking, and I kept thinking, and I kept praying, and I kept texting Tom questions, who was very gracious uh, in, in dealing with them. Um, so I'm going to lay out a little bit of where I, I would like to go this morning, uh, having said all of that rambling preamble. Um, This passage in John is a poem. And it's this really beautiful, structured poem. Um, it's called a chiastic poem. It's kind of laid out uh, in such that it goes A, phrase, B, different phrase, C, different phrase, D, the entire point of the poem, and then it comes back through C, B, a. And so that's why it feels so repetitive when you're reading it. It's intentional. And um, at the same time, it is packed full of ideas and concepts and all of those kinds of things that would have been so heavy to the folks that received it at the beginning. And... Um, so my goal today is to use this poem 
and kind of reframe it and put it back into the time in which people would have read it the first time or when it was written. The narrative in which they were moving, living, and operating under and then hopefully take that and uh, figure out some way to apply that to where we are today. And um, whenever I, I talk, I, I, like, I like to remind people, um, this, is, this is designed to be a first word, not a last word. Um, this is designed to cause people to think and to process and to go back into their small groups and in their families and in their communities and have the discussion further and flesh it out more and wrestle with it and uh, grow. Um, I'm a firm believer that uh, the more that we wrestle with each other and the text and all of that, the, the deeper the understanding goes and the real transformation begins to happen. So John 1, the writer, creates this poem. And, and with the Gospels, uh, they could be loosely described as propaganda. These are people that are very particularly telling the story of Jesus in such a way to explain to the people that they're working with who he is. no secret that Jesus was a Jew and had a very particular worldview that came from the narrative of Israel and how Israel related to its creator. And I know Tom talked a, a few weeks about a few weeks ago about creation and kind of pointed out all the beautiful ways the, the creation, the God-centered creation, God acting and God creating stands in stark contrast to some of the other worldviews and why it matters. So I'm not going to go into all that. Um, suffice to say that within Israel at this time, there would have been the overarching narrative of God created the world. He placed us in it. He created a covenant with us in order to deal with the fallenness of the creation. And the people of God would have thought of themselves as marked out and particularly special within this context, really because of a couple of things. They were marked out because they were given the law. They were also marked out because they had the tabernacle or the temple. Now, this is like a weird thing for us to process here, right? But we don't have this entire um, mindset of thinking through what it means to go through exile, to be rescued from Egypt and to wander in the desert with the presence of God going before us in a pillar of fire or cloud. See, at this point, the temple was the dwelling place of God. 
his entire glory, his entire essence, that creative force that led them through the desert resided in a place. Israel messes up again. They get conquered again. Except for this time, they tear down the temple. And God's glory goes away. There isn't this sense that there's a place on earth where that glory of God resides, where mere mortals can't enter. So they're in this period of waiting. They even win a little bit and they get to rebuild this temple for the second time. But even after rebuilding it, there's just not that same sense of a pillar of fire or a cloud or that full indwelling of the glory of God on earth. And this was a period of like intense longing and desire for relief. Within their world, they're waiting for the Messiah to come and put all of this right, to win the great battle, to bring justice, to be a new king. They want this glory to return. And when you've been so long without it, you probably start to doubt that it was ever there in the first place. If, if only someone could come and rescue us, if only God would act, if only God would kick out these Romans, if only God would restore us to power, So this is the operating narrative that we find in the world that Jesus enters. Still a sense in which return from exile hasn't happened. Rome is still occupying. They want to be justified as the people of God. And yet, the glory, the power of God is conspicuously absent. And then we have Jesus. And he comes and he starts to make all of these statements about himself. And he starts to take on a lot of the mantles and a lot of the language around all of that. In fact, recenters and retells the story in such a way that he puts himself at the center. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the name of God. And so now you have this text that we get to in John 1, right? And 
why does John tell this kind of piece in a poem? Well, because he's doing something very, very, very clever. He's retelling the entire story of Israel in summation through the lens of Jesus. See, if you remember back in Genesis 1, we have the creation narrative and the word of God, or God speaks. His words go out and stuff happens. Light, dark, people animals, the whole nine. And you have the spirit that's brooding over the waters, and then you have God walking with people in the garden. You have this beautiful creation that was super good until we messed it up. And here we have, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You have this very, very narrative-focused, placing it very specifically within Israel's narrative as the focal point of where all of the history and the covenant of the people of God has been moving. And right in the middle of the poem, the very, like, crux statement, word, he, like, takes a jab at the Romans and Greeks. Poetry can be super powerful even if you don't understand it at first. I'm not usually good with poetry, so this is another reason I feel really uncomfortable here. See, the word um, here is actually, uh, the word is logos. And it's, the root word for where we all get all of our words that end in ology. And the connotative meaning for logos would be like the full representation or the full truth or the revelation or truth itself. And there was a huge debate going on, whether or not Logos existed, and if so, how could one find it? One of the ways that they dug into this was to deny that it was knowable at all. There may be a full representation of humanness or there may be a full divine revelation of truth and it's unknowable because we're finite people, we can't approach it, gone. Or they may go the other way and say, Logos is inside of you. The full representation, if you just go deep enough, you will find truth. If you just isolate yourself a little bit more, you'll get there, which plays itself out in many different ways. There's the pleasure cults of the time of basic hedonism. And then there's the other side of pure aestheticism. Um, So either you're going to try to find truth by redefining it as happiness and then 
trying to make your own happiness by filling every desire that you could possibly have, or that you could somehow find happiness by self-denial, that the body itself is bad, my desires are bad, nothing about this is good, thereby I will not do anything like that and I will continue to exist as small, small, small as possible. So my soul can expand, I must make my body less. Or, on the other side, in order to kill my soul, I must give my body what it wants. And it's kind of marked by this very strong dualism that the soul and the body are wildly apart. But John, the writer, takes that entire debate, centers it, within the narrative of the people of God relating to their creator and defines it in one man. He says, no, the truth isn't inside of you. It's not through self-denial or giving in to every temptation that you have. No, the full revelation, the full truth, the entirety of your story is found in one man, Jesus Christ. How, how, how can that be, right? We'll see. There are, there's all these debates about how this actually works, and I'm not really interested in them. Um, in terms of like making a, a case for a theological preposition on some idea of how can somebody be 100% two different things. I don't know how that works. but I know the full divine reality of truth is represented in the person of Jesus Christ. And that because of that, because of that fact, the entire world was unmade and remade See, that entire glory of God that marked out Israel by residing in the temple had now shifted into one guy. The glory of God, the temple, was made flesh in Jesus Christ. And if that's true, 
once again, we destroyed another temple. And yet this time, it rose again in full glory. And upon resurrection, Jesus hangs out with the disciples for a little bit, and then he says, hey, all it's actually going to be way better for you if I, for real, go home. Because in my absence, I will send you something that's far greater. And when Jesus ascends, he sends the people of God that are now not marked out by the law, which he fulfilled 100%, or by temple, which again, he redefined around himself. We're marked out by the Spirit of God. And through the Holy Spirit, he gives us the ability to be children of God. We get adopted in to his family and thereby, on some level, become temples ourselves. Maybe not good ones all the time. But we are the place where the glory of God enters into a creation that was created good and has gone woefully awry. So what does that mean? Like, how do, we, how do we take that and apply that around our own stories, or how do we live into that? Um, I, think, I think a couple of things are really, really important, and I think um, there's an intense lie that our culture tells us that allows us to identify ourselves. It allows us to if we just can look deep inside and find my true authentic self, then I can live into that and I can be that and I can become a whole person. All of history and the entire created order tells us that that is not true. How can something that's fallen ever make itself whole? The only wholeness you will find, the only identity that you will find that will make you whole is in the person of Jesus Christ. So my number one takeaway is reframe your story and your identity. Tell your story differently. The very apex of your story should be centered in the person, the life, the work, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The way that you approach your life should be through that lens. It's the only way that things will start to reorder and wholeness will come.
See, we always have different ways of, of talking about ourselves and whether we're in the work environment or we're at church or we're at name the place. And it always goes, you know, if you're meeting somebody for the first time, it, it generally goes like, hey, name, what do you do? Married, kids? What if we changed that and we said, hey, nice to meet you. Who are you? Not like in a creepy way, just who are you? And watch people like back off because it's a, it's a much harder question to answer. If someone says, hey, what do you do? It's easy to answer. If someone says, who are you? Like, I don't, I don't even know what you're asking. What if our default answer what if where our brain went, whether we frame it this way in conversation or not, what if our default place was, I'm a child of the risen Christ? See, this is, this is my life, and this God came down from heaven hung out and adopted me. And it didn't even matter what all the crazy stuff that I was doing at the time or that I'm still doing or that I'm still struggling with. No, that God came to adopt you where you're at. So that's number one, retell your story differently. The second way I think Definitely more, but become a temple person. What does it mean to have the full glory of God indwelling us? How do we reflect that to each other and back to our Creator? I think we have to do it together. And uh, I think one of the strongest things about Gateway, and I think most people would agree with me, is that we have amazing small groups that can provide the start of these conversations, the start of this reflecting back and forth. Um, so if you're not in one, I would encourage you but even if, if it's not in your small group, if it's with your family, if it's with friends, if it's with whatever, if we go into it with the intentionality of this person bears the weight of glory, how does that change our conversation? God himself lives in community. Father, Son, Spirit, a lot of what we talk about, something that's incredibly, incredibly important and life-giving. 
the last thing that I think we do is we take it forward. We take it forward by loving our neighbor as ourselves. We take it forward by serving. We take it forward by laying our lives down for those that we come across. But I think, and this is, uh, this is for me, but I see it a lot. It's easy to serve. It's way more difficult to tell people why we serve. And I'm not saying we've got to put a track every time, you know, like we hold a door open for somebody or something like that. But if the reason that we are serving is the person of Jesus Christ who came to adopt us into his family, if we're too afraid to frame our story around that in conversation because we might be offensive, we've gone awry. We're letting people take the name of Jesus, organize it around political or other ideas, co-opt the true kingdom work that Jesus calls us into. And it's even more important that we take that work seriously. We are no longer the people of God marked out by Torah or the law or the temple. We are the people of God that are marked out by faith, hope, and love. We are the people of God that are marked out by baptism and ultimately communion. And so as we lead into uh, this time of communion, um, I think we have uh, the creed to put up on the screen possibly, and uh, it would be super cool um, to read that together. But right before we read that together, um, I just want to pray real quick, if that's cool. And Father God, I thank you so much um, for the folks that are here and the amazing way that you have called us into communion with yourself through adoption. The way you love us, the way that you Lead us. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the creativity of poems. Thank you for giving us things that we don't fully understand and to wrestle with in order that we may find truth in the person 
of Jesus Christ, your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If y'all want to join me, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. Their day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. What an amazing call. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.